very, very intriguing book and a book that uh, has confused a lot of people through the years. What we've been finding out is if, that if you'll just be a believer of the Bible and the words of the Bible, that God is very clear in this book by comparing Scripture with Scripture. It is very clear what God is doing. Uh, a misnomer would be that there is so much symbolism in this book. How could we ever figure it out? And what we've seen in, in our study is really there's very little symbolism in this book. And if you just go to it and just believe what you read, it, it'll make this thing really pretty simple. But we're in Revelation chapter 12 right now. And those of you that have been here for this study know that there have been many times throughout the course of our, our study of the book of Revelation where we referred you to the things that are found in the book of Daniel. And the reason for that is Daniel was receiving visions and, and prophesying about the very same things that John was experiencing and John was prophetically writing down for us in this final book of the Bible. But in the book of Daniel, Daniel had a, a very particular vision. And if you'll get this thing down, it'll really simplify the Bible for you. So, now some of you, have, you've heard about this vision before. It's a, a vision that is called the vision of 70 weeks. Actually, it is 70 weeks of years. So how long of a period is that, y'all? Okay, good. 490 years. For those of you that this is new to, no, just think for a second, is a second. 70 weeks of years. Okay, and if you multiply 70 times 7... It comes up to 490 years. And Daniel receives a prophecy of these 70 weeks of years, or these 490 years. And in that period of time, in that 70 weeks of years, what Daniel's prophecy encompassed was that period of time, and it was directed specifically to the nation of Israel, but it gave in that 70 weeks of years all of the events that would take place all the way up to the Lord Jesus Christ establishing his millennial kingdom on this earth. In fact, it's been proven that if anybody would have just gone to the book of Daniel and they would have just read the chronology and believed what they read, and the way that, that Daniel spelled that thing out, they could have predicted the very day when Jesus rode into the city of Jerusalem at his triumphal entry because Daniel said that that event would take place after 69 weeks of years. Okay, now how long is 69 weeks of years? If your math, is, well, just take 7 off of the 70, and what you'll find is it's 483 years. And now, now listen, 483 years after the day that Daniel said to begin to start counting precisely... 173,880 days from the day that Daniel said to start counting, Jesus rode on a donkey into the city of Jerusalem, and he was heralded as the nation of Israel, as the Jewish Messiah. It was to the very day that Daniel said, and that was on Sunday, and he comes in, and he's recognized as Israel's Messiah. And again, that's on Sunday. But by Wednesday, that same exact crowd was calling for his death. And just like Daniel prophesied, after that 69th week of years, he said the Messiah was or would be cut off. So he's going to come in 
And he's going to come in in his triumphal entry after 69 weeks. And at that same period of time, what Daniel said is the Messiah will be cut off. And what you find historically is they did just that. On Sunday, he's heralded as the Messiah. On Wednesday, he's cut off. They crucified him. And the Bible says that he came unto his own. And his own, of course, was the Jews, the, the nation of Israel. He came unto his own. He came as the fulfillment of the promises of the Old Testament, that he was their Messiah, that he was there right in front of them. He came unto his own, and the scripture, of course, says that his own received him not. Okay, now listen. Though Daniel couldn't see it, and, and though nobody in the entire Old Testament could see it, there was something that God had planned to do that all through the Old Testament was hidden. It was going to be revealed later on, but all through the Old Testament it was hidden. It was what the New Testament calls a mystery. And, and what that mystery was is that after the Jews cut off their Messiah and they rejected him and his offer of the kingdom, what happened, and again, here's that mystery that nobody could see in the Old Testament. What happened is we entered into a parenthesis in Daniel's vision where God stopped counting. Now, way back here, Daniel receives this prophecy, and God says, you start counting on this day. And 69 weeks of years later, you can just bank on it, Jesus is going to ride into the city of Jerusalem on a donkey. And folks, from the day that God started counting, 483 years to the day, 173,880 days later, if you would have just counted it, you could have just walked, gone to the streets of Jerusalem and said, you know, he ought to be here just about any time now. And here he'd be, coming in. But after he was cut off, after he came to the Jews and they rejected him, God stopped counting. And that parenthesis is what we now refer to as the church age. And during this period of time, God is focusing his work and his plan predominantly upon the Gentiles. Now again, the, the vision of 70 weeks all had to do with the nation of Israel. And then we entered into this parenthesis after the 69th of those weeks. And even though Paul was the one to whom the, the mystery was revealed, the mystery of the church, what Paul didn't realize and what we now know is that parenthesis that was going to take place after that 69th week was about... 2,000 years long, and here we are almost 2,000 years removed from that period of time where that parenthesis is going to close. And what the New Testament teaches is that there is an event that is going to take place that is going to close the parenthesis. And that event is what we call the, what? It's the rapture. Okay, the rapture is that event that prophetically could take place literally this morning or tomorrow morning, or at any moment, and it is that time when Jesus Christ will come in the clouds, and the Bible says, in the moment, in the twinkling of an eye, what is going to take place is all of the people that are on the earth who have come to the place in their life where they have called upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ to forgive them of their sin, to come into their life, and to be their own personal Lord and Savior. What is going to take place in the moment in the twinkling of an eye is all of the people on this planet that know him will bodily be removed. Now listen, 
as soon as that event takes place, the parenthesis closes and God starts counting again. And what's going to take place then is that final and 70th week of Daniel's prophecy is going to kick in. Now let me just make sure that you got this. Daniel says, I'm going to give you a vision of 70 weeks. And by the time this 70 weeks is all finished, Jesus is going to come back to this earth and he's going to set up his millennial kingdom. Okay, now, when I tell you to start counting, you can just bank on it. After 69 of those weeks pass, which is 483 years, which is 173,880 days, after that period of time passes, you can count on it, Jesus is going to ride into the city of Jerusalem, he'll be heralded as their Messiah, and shortly after that event, in fact, three days later, they're going to crucify him, and at that period of time, we entered into a parenthesis, that parenthesis is called the, the church age, and the event that is going to close the parenthesis is what? The rapture, and as soon as the rapture takes place, here it comes, God's going to finish that final week of years. And that final week of years is a period of seven years, a seven-year period on this earth that we biblically call the tribulation period. Sometimes it's referred to in the scripture as the time of Jacob's or Israel's trouble, and it is described biblically as a day of God's wrath, as a day of God's vengeance upon the earth. And then, of course, at the close of that seven year period, what's going to happen? After that 70th and final week of years, Jesus Christ is going to come at his second coming. He's going to return to the, the earth. He will sit on his throne in Jerusalem, just like Daniel prophesied years and years ago. It's all going to happen just the way that he said. And from his throne in Jerusalem, he will rule and reign as the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords over all of the earth for a period of a thousand years, a thousand year period that we call the we call the millennium. And let me just take just a second to show you a little tidbit from Jesus' ministry where he not only fulfills part of Daniel's prophecy, but foreshadows this parenthesis that we've been talking about between the 69th and 70th week of Daniel's prophecy. Now, you guys feel like you understand that 70-week gig? I mean, is this clear as a bell? You got it? Okay, cool. Now, now go to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 4. Let me show you something that's just kind of wild I stumbled onto this week. In Luke chapter 4, of course, Jesus is, is just beginning his, his earthly ministry. And it says in Luke chapter 4 and verse 16, And when he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and his, as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up for to read. Okay, so now to get the picture in your mind, he, he walks into the synagogue, and he's going to read the scripture. Verse 17, and there was delivered unto him the book of the prophet Isaiah, which is the, the Greek way of saying Isaiah. Somebody brings to him the book of Isaiah, and don't get in your mind a, a book like we have a book, because books weren't like this. It was a scroll that was called a book in that day. So they, they bring to him this, this scroll, and this scroll would have been the, what we call the book of Isaiah. And it says, And when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written, 
the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. And where he went to was what we call Isaiah chapter 61. Okay? So he opens to Isaiah 61. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He hath sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives, and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. Now notice, period. And he closed the book, he rolls the scroll back, and he gave it again to the minister and sat down, and the eyes of all them that were in the synagogue were fastened on him, and he began to say unto them, This day is this scripture fulfilled in your ears. In other words, what he's saying is what I just read from Isaiah chapter 61, verses 1 and 2, I just fulfilled that right in front of your very eyes. Okay, you got that? I'm the one that Isaiah was talking about. But now let's go back. Now, now I want you to hold your place here, because I want you to refer back to this here in just a second. I want you to go to that place in Isaiah 61, and I want you to see something here. <clears throat> Isaiah 61. And this will sound real familiar to you, because we just read it. Jesus just quoted it. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me. But now watch real carefully now. Because the Lord hath anointed me to preach the good tidings unto the meek. He hath sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to them that are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord, comma, and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all that mourn. Now, what do you notice here? Go, hold your place here and go back to, to Luke and look at verse 19 and compare that to verse 2 of Isaiah 61. He, he comes along and he says... I, to set at liberty them that are bruised, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord, period. And he closed the book. You know what, what you find out in Isaiah chapter 61 is he closed the book right in the middle of a sentence. You see that? He closes the book at a comma. And you realize what Jesus is doing here in a very subtle kind of way. He is foreshadowing for us this parenthesis because you know what that comma represents right there? That comma represents the entire church age. He closes the book. After Jesus was on this earth, the acceptable year of the Lord, but before the day of vengeance takes place, when's the day of vengeance, y'all? It's the final week of years. It's the 70th week of Daniel's prophecy. And what Jesus does is he comes to the point of where he had fulfilled the scripture to that point, and you know what he did? He sat down. What did Jesus Christ do after he had fulfilled the prophecy and laid his life down as a sacrifice for us? He sat down. He sat down at the right hand of God the Father, and he's going to stay there until he comes on the day of vengeance to fulfill this thing. So what we're dealing with in the book of Revelation, and why don't we cruise back there now, we're in Revelation chapter 12, and what we find in Revelation chapter 12 is that 
This is dealing with that very period of time that Daniel was prophesying. He's, the book of Revelation is basically, the bulk of the book is consumed with that seven-year period called Jacob's Trouble. In fact, from Revelation chapter 6 all the way to chapter 19, what he does is he brings you four times through Daniel's 70th week. He brings you four times through the tribulation period, and now we're going through this period, seeing uh, the, the tribulation through the work and the, the ministry of the Antichrist. And now, in chapter 12, and we've been here for, for several weeks, and it's a very, very, very key chapter in the Bible. In fact, uh, uh, Ironside, many of you under, know who I'm talking about, a, a guy from the last generation in his commentary on this thing, he, he said, I, I've read at least a hundred commentaries on the book of Revelation. And he says, and I've learned a way to just kind of simplify who's got the goods and, and who doesn't. He says, what I do is that when I look at a commentary, I just go to Revelation chapter 12. And I want to see who, what they do with the woman and what they do with the child. And he says, because if they mess that up, I know this. They're going to mess up the rest of the book of Revelation. And so Revelation chapter 12 is just a very, very key chapter. And we looked, first of all, at the great wonder in heaven. And we spent several weeks identifying the, the characters, the woman, the great red dragon, the child. We saw that the woman is the nation of Israel. The great red dragon is Satan. The child, of course, is the Lord Jesus Christ. We, we spent another period of time just making sure that we understand that Revelation chapter 12, you better understand the context or you'll get yourself all messed up in, in, in the rest of the, this book. The context of Revelation chapter 12, 13, and 14 are the final three and a half years of Daniel's 70th week. In other words, the final 1,260 days before Jesus Christ will come back at the second coming. The final 42 months of the tribulation. And then the, over the last several weeks, we've been looking at the great war that is in heaven. And we saw who the combatants were. We saw that it was Michael the archangel against the dragon, which of course is defined for you there in verse 9 as Satan. And we identified last week as well the conquest. And when we ended last time, we were looking at the rejoicing of heaven. Okay, What takes place in the midst of this war that was in heaven is Satan and his angels were removed from heaven. And we saw how over the last 6,000 years where Satan has spent most of his time is in a very peculiar place. It's at the throne of God, getting in God's face, accusing God's children. And at this point, when this war takes place in heaven, what takes place is Satan and his angels are finally removed from heaven. And in verse 11 of Revelation chapter 12, with a loud voice... The tribulation saints burst forth in unison, and they're praising God, and they're rejoicing. I mean, they've finally gotten Satan out of their way. He's removed, and in verse 12 they say, Therefore, rejoice, ye heavens, and all ye that dwell in them. He's finally out of our hair. But listen, no sooner have the words of praise and rejoicing come off of their lips but that they realize the significance of 
what this removal from heaven is actually going to mean to the people who are on the earth. And in the same breath that they're using to rejoice and to praise God over the fact that he's out of there, watch what they say in the rest of verse 12. But woe to the inhabitants of the earth and of the sea! Exclamation point. For the devil is come down unto you having great wrath because he knoweth that he hath but a short time. And when the dragon saw that he was cast unto the earth, he persecuted the woman which brought forth the man-child. And this brings us to Roman numeral 3 in our outline. A great wrath upon the earth. A great wrath on the earth. We've seen a great wonder in heaven, a great war in heaven, and now a great wrath on earth. Okay, so now get this. Satan loses in this battle with Michael and his angels. So not only is, is Satan cast out of, of heaven, but he and his angels are cast down to the earth. And as soon as he hits, man, he is absolutely ticked. He hits the earth with great wrath. And that great wrath is going to be directed very particularly. Verse 13 says it's going to be directed against the woman. It's going to be directed against who, y'all? Against Israel. And that's letter A on your outline. Satan's persecution of the woman. Satan's persecution of the woman. And again, as we've already seen back in the early part of this, of this chapter, the woman in Revelation chapter 12 is without a doubt the nation of Israel. And, and I want you to see how this all comes together. So look with me first of all at this satanic invasion of the earth. The satanic invasion of the earth. And, and let's, let's try to piece together this, this thing and uh, what we've been seeing in, since chapter 11 and chapter 12 and on into 13, 14, and 15 and some places, other places in the Bible that will all come together for you when you see this, this invasion take place. Now, and look back at verse 8. What we saw back in verse 8, the dragon, Satan, and his angels lost in this war with Michael and his angels, and as a result of it, they will be cast out of heaven and what, what the end of verse 8 says is this is something that is going to take place and it will be once and for all. John says their place will not be found any more in heaven. We know that for the last 6,000 years, Satan and his angels have had access to the throne of God. And you can go back to Job chapter 1 and 2 and you can see a precedent for, for this thing. But at this point, after this war with Michael and his angels, their place will no more be found in heaven. The end of verse 9 says that the dragon was cast out into the earth and his angels were cast out with him. And folks, at this point in the tribulation period, and remember what period of time that we're actually talking about, okay? The, the, the time frame of, of this event, of this war that takes place in heaven between Michael and his angels and, and Satan and his angels is at the midpoint of the tribulation period. And at this point... All at once, at the middle of the tribulation period, all at once, the earth will be invaded and totally engulfed, not only with the angels of Satan, but with Satan himself. Now, we're going to get into this in detail when we come to chapter 13. 
But there's some things that we, we need to show you that take place in chapter 13 that have everything to do with what we're talking about here in chapter 12. You see, you need to understand that while this war that will be going on between Michael and Satan up in heaven, while this war is going on in heaven at the very same time on the earth, the Antichrist, who will for the first three and a half years of the tribulation period just be the cat's meow as far as the world is concerned. After the rapture takes place and that tribulation period begins, this world is going to be in a major state of chaos. The crisis in the Middle East will have escalated far beyond where it is at right now today, but it's, it's already set up for this whole thing. The crisis in the Middle East is going on. Everybody's got their attention on the nation of Israel. And when the rapture takes place and the Antichrist comes on the scene, he's going to very, very smoothly, and we've seen this in Revelation chapter 6 and, and right on through, he's going to come to this planet and he's going to have all of the answers. And he's going to begin to unify this world. And, and what's going to happen is he is going to sign a peace treaty with Israel. And he's going to grant some liberties to Israel that they've wanted for a long time, not to mention peace. And if you go to Israel today and you begin to just ask those people, how are you going to recognize when the Messiah gets here? You know what they're going to say? He will bring peace. And here comes the false Messiah, the Antichrist, and he will bring peace. Daniel 9.27 says that he is going to sign a peace treaty with Israel. And he's going to allow the nation of Israel to rebuild their temple. And he is going to have world acclaim. The whole world is just going to be thinking this guy is wonderful and he will set himself as the benevolent and beloved dictator of the world. Okay, so for three and a half years since the rapture, this guy has been on the earth doing his thing. All right? At the midpoint of the tribulation period, Satan and his angels war against Michael and his angels. And while that war is going on up in heaven, what takes place down on the earth is the Antichrist gets assassinated. Three and a half years into the tribulation period, the Antichrist gets assassinated. He'll receive a, a death blow to the head. And while the whole world is, is watching this event take place live on CNN and TBN and MSNBC and all the others, what is going to take place as he is lying dead in the street is all of a sudden the Antichrist will rise from the dead and the world is going to watch that event in absolute amazement and wonder. But what you need to make sure that you understand, folks, and this is so important, is he really doesn't rise from the dead. What's going to happen is when Satan is cast down to the earth by Michael when he loses this war, when he comes down to the earth, he is literally going to take up residence in the cold, lifeless body of the Antichrist that is lying in the middle of the street. He, Satan is cast down. Bam! At the same time, the Antichrist is assassinated on the earth. And Satan literally comes down moves into that body and for the next three and a half years he'll use that human body to carry out his ministry on the earth now it doesn't really take a, a rogue scholar to figure out that if God in human flesh the Lord Jesus Christ
carried out his ministry in an earthly body on this earth for a period of three and a half years, then Satan, the great counterfeiter, and the one who has always sought to be like the Most High, it's not unthinkable that he would find some way to come to this planet to be Satan in human flesh to carry out his ministry for a period of three and a half years. Because remember who he is. He's the Antichrist. He is the great counterfeiter. And God came to this planet in a human body and ministered for three and a half years. Satan is going to do the same exact thing at the midpoint of the tribulation period when the Antichrist gets assassinated. He'll come in to that human body and be Satan in human flesh for three and a half years. And if you're wondering where all of this is coming from, it's right here in chapter 13. You'll notice in verse 1 that it begins talking about the beast, which is the Antichrist. And John says, down all the wandered after the beast, and they worshipped the dragon. Now, who's the dragon, y'all? Satan. They worshipped Satan, which gave power unto the beast. You see, because he's taken up residence in him, they think that they're worshipping the Antichrist. And in fact, they, they are, but they're actually, what, what John is letting us know here, they're actually worshipping the dragon, because the dragon has, at this point moved in to that earthly body of the Antichrist, and they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like unto the beast? Who is able to make war with him? Now, the world won't realize it, but Michael will have just made war with him and kicked his tail, right? Now, we know that. But because it looked like the beast, the Antichrist, rose from the dead... What everybody on this planet, probably some of the people that are in this room this morning, which is the wildest thing in the world, the people on this planet are going to be saying, Oh, there's nobody like the beast. I mean, who would dare to make war with him? Because even if you kill him, you know what he's going to do? What? He'll rise from the dead. But you see, they won't realize... This whole thing that we now know, that Satan literally moves into that body. There's no resurrection there. And you see, it's at this point that what Daniel prophesied in Daniel 9:27, what Jesus prophesied in Matthew 24, verse 15, what Paul prophesied in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 4 is going to take place on this planet. It's what is called the abomination of desolation. At this point... Three and a half years in, after the Antichrist has been assassinated, Satan has moved into that body, and it looks like he's resurrected. At this point, what takes place on this planet is the abomination of desolation. And what all three of those men described and prophesied, Jesus, Daniel, and Paul, is that at the middle of the tribulation period, Satan, in the body of the Antichrist, is going to walk into Israel's newly rebuilt temple. And what he's going to do when he walks in is he's going to place a, a statue or an image of himself in the Holy of Holies, and he is going to proclaim to the world that he is God. And he will demand that all of the people of the earth worship him and his image. And if you want to know if he's successful or not when he does this, you should still be here in Revelation chapter 13. And drop down to verse 8. And what's the next word, y'all? 
And all that dwell upon the earth shall worship him whose names are not written in the book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. He'll come into that temple and he'll make his declaration that he is God. He'll commit the abomination of desolation, which is where he sets his image up in the Holy of Holies and requires that all the worship, all the world worship him. He's going to come in and he's going to do that. And, and now listen, in Matthew chapter 24, Jesus told the people who will be alive on this planet to see the abomination of desolation take place. He tells those people, the people of Israel, now listen, boys and girls, as soon as you see this thing take place, you literally head for the hills. As soon as you see that thing take place, you better skedaddle. And let me, let me show you this back in Matthew chapter 24. Matthew 24. And look at verse 15. Now Jesus is, is speaking here. His disciples have asked him, Now how are we going to know when the end of the world is here? And what he does is he describes for you the events that take place in Daniel's 70th week. The events of the tribulation period. And in that context, in verse 15, look at what he says. When ye therefore shall see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, stand in the holy place. Now watch this. Whoso readeth, let him understand. And that's not really a, a smiley face there for you computer folks at the end of that word there. That's, that's a colon with a parenthesis right there. Whoso readeth, let him understand. Then let them which be in Judea Flee into the mountains. Let him which is on the housetop not come down to take anything out of his house. Ne neither let him which is in the field return back to his clothes. And woe unto them that are with child, to them that give suck in those days. And Jesus is, is, is saying here, Oh my goodness, as soon as you see this thing take place, you better get out of there. You don't have any time to waste. You, you don't have time to go back into the house and get anything. As soon as you know, as soon as CNN puts this thing on the TV and you see it take place, as soon as you see it happen. And, and notice that, I mean, man, God was prophesying this, this whole thing years ago. How is all the world going to see this? How is everybody in Jerusalem going to be able to see this? They're going to see it off the same way we see everything that goes on in the, in the world. When you see this thing take place, and he says, if you're reading this thing, oh my goodness, you, 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 better, you better get your bearings, and you better get out of there as soon as you see it take place. You know why? Because Revelation chapter 12 and verse 13, it tells you why. You don't need to turn there. Just stay right here in Matthew 24. But Revelation chapter 12 and verse 13 tells you why you don't have any time to waste and why you better get out of there. It's because as soon as Satan is cast to the earth, he is intent on doing one thing. And what is that? When he hits this earth, folks, he's got one thing in mind, and that is to persecute the woman which brought forth the Lord Jesus Christ. And who is that? The nation of Israel. And you see, that's why the Lord Jesus Christ says in this passage, Hey, all you folks who are in Judea, oh my goodness, in that tribulation period, if you come along this and, and you're reading and you see that the Gospel of Matthew is the Gospel that was written 
to the Jews. And he says, all of you folks in Judea, if you're reading this, you better read real carefully and you better understand what it is that you're reading. When you see the Antichrist go into the holy place and you see him do his thing, buddy, you better hightail it to the mountains because you're getting ready to be a part and to be a victim of the most horrendous and the most incredible outbreak of anti-Semitism that the world has ever seen. When this takes place, you can just bank on it. According to Revelation chapter 12, Satan is going to come and he's going to have one thing in mind, and it is persecuting the nation of Israel. And that's why verse 21 says, For then shall be great tribulation, such as was not since the beginning of the world to this time, no, nor ever shall be. And this is number two on your outline. The satanic indignance of the woman. The satanic indignance of the woman. Now you should understand the invasion of Satan and his angels to this planet. But I want you to see now the satanic indignance of the woman. When Satan and his angels hit this earth after losing the war in heaven with Michael and his angels, they're absolutely... Indignant, And you need to understand that Satan's indignant, indignance is actually, at this period of time, directed toward God. But his indignance has always been directed toward God. But what you begin to see as you take the Bible as a whole is that there's a very definite pattern of what Satan does with his indignance, with his hatred. What you find is that because Satan can't actually do anything to mete out his hatred and vengeance upon God himself, what you consistently see him do down through the centuries is mete out his hatred and his indignance upon whoever it is that God is using to carry out his plan on the earth. Now, you tracking with that? He can't get at God, and he hates God. He's indignant toward God, and since he can't do anything to him, he gets at those that God is using to fulfill his plan on the earth. And I mean, folks, listen, you can go back in the Old Testament, and you, you see that God gives to Abraham a promise that through his seed, he would raise up a nation through which all of the other nations of the world would be blessed. And in that same promise of a nation... What God gives to, Adam, or to Abraham is a promise of a land. It's what we call in the scripture the promised land. Abraham's seed was going to become a nation and God was going to give them a land. And what you begin to see from that period of time for 400 years. Now God's given this promise, but a period of 400 years... This nation, these people were being held in bondage in Egypt. And listen, day after day after day in Egypt, as God was forging that group of people into a nation, you know what Satan was doing? Day after day, he was meeting out his judgment and his indignance and his hatred upon God, upon the people that God was going to use on this planet to carry out his plan. And day after day, behind the taskmaster's whip in Egypt, you know who was on the other side of that whip? It was Satan himself pouring out his indignance toward God on this group of people. And according to Genesis chapter 15 and verse 13, listen, that was going on for 400 years. Now folks, our country is about half as old as that. I'm talking about this was an incredible period of time. And now listen, 
while that for 400 years, day after day, they're being persecuted and whipped and beaten and all of those things that are going on. Listen, for that entire 400-year period that they were being afflicted in Egypt, Satan, at the very same time, was busy over in that land that God had promised to him. And what he was doing over in that land was strategically raising up and empowering the nations that were over in that land already so that when God finally delivered his people out of that bondage that they were in in Egypt and they crossed into that land, Satan had already set up very strategically all of these other groups of people that this nation is going to have to fight with once they come into that thing. You know why? Because Satan is indignant toward God and whoever it is that God is going to use on this planet to fulfill his plan. And what you begin to see is they come into that land and they've got to fight the, the Canaanites, the Gibeonites, the Amalekites, the Mosquito Bites, the whole rest of the deal. I mean, he, he's, got to, he's got to fight, the, the nation of Israel has to fight with all of them. And you begin, you see that all the way through the Old Testament until finally in 606 B.C., the nation of Israel is taken captive by the Babylonian Empire, they're released for a little while, then they come under the, uh, the domination of the Medo-Persian Empire, and then after them it's the Greeks, and then after them it's the Romans, and then about this period of time, Jesus comes on the scene. And Jesus is God in human flesh, and you know why he's here? He's here to carry out the purpose and plan of God on the earth. Now, you remember what Satan does? Whoever is here to carry out the purpose and plan of God, he's going to come after him. And what we saw at the beginning of Revelation chapter 12 is that as soon as Jesus was born, the scripture says that the dragon was there to devour him. And of course he didn't do it, but we saw all the way through Jesus' ministry on the earth, what Satan was bent on doing was trying to kill him, to try to kill him because he hates him. And then finally, Jesus is is arrested. He's praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. And now, finally, after all of the attempts that Satan has, has tried to use to kill him, and, after, and with each one of those, Jesus would miraculously escape from that thing. And now Jesus is praying in the Garden. And Jesus says, okay, boys, this is it. And now Satan finally gets his chance. Now, please don't ever get the idea that Jesus was a victim to Satan in that garden. He comes and he's arrested and all of that kind of a deal. But according to Acts chapter 2 and verse 23, when Jesus was delivered over to his persecutors, what it says in Acts chapter 2 and verse 23 is that he was not delivered over as a victim to the Romans, by the Jews, or Satan, or anybody else. Acts chapter 2 and verse 23 says that he was delivered to his persecutors by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God. You know who arrested him in that garden? God. Because he had come to that garden and he had come to this earth to fulfill a plan. But he was arrested, he was beaten, and he was scourged. He was crucified because this was the plan of God before the foundation of the world. But, listen, at the same time, don't think for a minute that Satan himself wasn't behind every single blow to his face. And he wasn't behind every slash of that whip to his back or that he wasn't behind every pounding of the nails into his hands and his feet, because he was. Satan 
hates him. He hates the exalted position that the Lord Jesus Christ has as the most high God. And yes, he was behind every single blow that was taking place on the cross. And listen, according to Revelation chapter 12, Satan hates the Lord Jesus Christ so much that he has maintained an absolute hatred and vengeance and indignance upon Israel ever since God said that there would come one born of the seed of the woman all the way through the Old Testament Satan is bent on persecuting the one through whom that seed would come after he was born in Bethlehem we've seen this over the last several weeks for the last two thousand years Satan has still hated so much the Lord Jesus Christ that he hates the one who was the responsible for bringing him into this earth and that's why the Jews for the last 2,000 years have come under the persecution that they've come through on this planet it's because Satan hates the Lord Jesus Christ and he came to this planet born of a woman but born through the nation of Israel and Satan was bent on coming against him through the nation of Israel as we talked about earlier on Israel rejected their Messiah and his offer to set up the kingdom and then what God does as we enter that parenthesis is God moves to carry out his plan on the earth through this thing that was a mystery he's moving to carry out his plan on this earth through the church and so if that's who God's gonna use to carry out his plan on the earth and what is Satan gonna do he's gonna come against those in whom the Spirit of Christ dwells and those who are living their life on this earth to fulfill the, the plan and the purpose of God. And you see, this is what Paul was talking about back in Colossians chapter 1 and verse 24 when he explained to the church at Colossae. He, he, he's explaining to him, and, and listen to this. He says, now listen, when Jesus was here, the devil persecuted the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross and afflicted him to the point of death. But what he says in Colossians chapter 1 and verse 24 is that even though Satan did that and was behind those blows on the cross, what, what Paul explains to us is the fact that Satan is not finished meeting out his hatred and his persecution on him. And so what Paul says is, listen, since he can no longer get it at him, since he can no longer get at the Lord Jesus Christ, but he's still got that hatred in him, what Paul says is since he can't get at him, he gets at me and he gets at those that are living their life like I am allowing the Spirit of Christ to live in them letting Jesus Christ live his life out on this earth through them and, and, and what he what he says there in Colossians chapter 1 and verse 24 is you know what I rejoice about that I rejoice in being able to take the blows that were meant for him because he took the blows that were meant for me and so, hey, listen, since Satan isn't finished and he still wants something to do, I enjoy, he says, being able to be one that takes the blows that were meant for the Lord Jesus Christ. But again, Satan always meets out his indignance toward God on whoever it is that God is using to fulfill his plan on the earth. And listen, at the midpoint of the tribulation, you know what's going to happen? At the midpoint of the tribulation period, God once again is directing his attention and his focus toward the nation of Israel. And what God begins to do at this point is he begins to fulfill his plan to them. He begins to fulfill his plan through them. And this is where what we saw back in Revelation chapter 11 begins to take place. Where God in the middle of the tribulation period sends down to the streets of Jerusalem two men. Do you remember who they are? 
The two witnesses, Moses and Elijah, you know who they are? They're the two of Israel's greatest prophets, and God's letting you know. Okay, the attention has turned once again to the nation of Israel. And he puts these two prophets right there at the capital city of the nation of Israel in Jerusalem. And for every one of Satan's 1,260 days while he's going to be on the earth ministering to the body of the Antichrist, those two witnesses are going to be right there and they're going to be preaching right in his face day after day and week after week. But God is directing his attention to the nation of Israel and when Satan is cast down to the earth and he enters into the human body of the Antichrist I want you to listen folks at that period of time it all comes together in Satan's thinking I mean he's able to see very very clearly and he knows that at that period of time he knows that he no longer has access into heaven to get in God's face to accuse his children at that period of time, he's going to know that the church has long since been removed from this planet. They left three and a half years ago at the rapture. So now listen, when he comes to this earth, he is not diversified in his working. He has one single-minded focus. He's got one thing when he hits this planet, one thing that he's here to do, and that is to persecute the nation of Israel and folks I mean he's gonna eat it he's gonna drink it he's gonna sleep it that's all he's gonna have on his mind it's gonna be his all-consuming all-embracing preoccupying desire and goal to come against the nation of Israel and what's gonna put an urgency behind what he's doing folks is when he hits this planet he's gonna know what time it is the end of verse 12 says that one of the things that intensifies his great wrath and his persecution of Israel is that he knows that his time is short. Now listen, as soon as he hits the earth, he knows that his days are numbered. He knows when he hits this earth that he's got 1,260 days. He's got it down to the day, y'all. He's counted it. He knows exactly how many days that he's got to carry out his mission before the Lord Jesus Christ comes back in power and glory and casts him into the bottomless pit. So listen, as soon as he hits the earth, he knows that he doesn't have any time to waste. So he literally hits the ground running. He knows whatever he's going to accomplish uh, as far as his mission is concerned, he knows he's got to get on with it because there's soon going to be coming a day when he will not be able to work. So knowing that his time is short, he intently and intensely focuses his full attention on the one thing that he's come to this planet to do. Now folks, I, I want to... I want to talk to you real seriously right now. I've been trying to, to bring you through this passage. I've been trying to show you all this stuff that's, that's going on. And I know we all want to get you know, to the end of this thing. We all want to see what's, what's going to happen here. But I'm coming through all of this in preparation this week. And I'm seeing all of, of what's going to take place on this earth and the way that Satan is going to hit this planet. And I could not help but think. Now, now listen. I could not help but think that for the last 
five, six, seven, eight years or so around this place, God's been trying to do something in this church. There's two very basic things I feel like God's been trying to do with this group of people. I think He's been trying to to let us know what time it is and what our sole mission on this planet is. I mean, if you're just going to take the last eight or so years and just going to boil it down into into its simplicity, that's what you're going to get. What time it is, and what our sole mission on this planet actually is. And, and, and now listen, yeah, we've learned, we've learned a, a lot of things through that. We've learned that God wants us to love Him. We've learned that God wants us to know Him. We've, we've learned that God wants us to worship Him. And we've seen the fact that all of those are vital to our fulfilling our purpose. But we've learned that when the Lord Jesus Christ takes us to heaven... We're going to love Him more intimately. We're going to know Him more infinitely. We're going to worship Him then more intensely than we do so that if our purpose was just loving Him, was just knowing Him, was just worshiping Him, then the absolute best thing that God could have done for Himself would have been to take us to heaven as soon as we called upon the name of the Lord. Because if we're going to love Him better, know Him more, and, and, and worship Him to a greater degree when we get to heaven, man, there's no sense us just spinning our wheels down here on the earth. But you see, now listen, our purpose, what we've seen, it isn't just to love Him, to know Him, and to worship Him. It's to reach the world for Him. And, and I, I've, I've said this in the last eight years so many times that some of you are sick of hearing it but I'm going to say it again the sole purpose God had in leaving us on this planet after he saved us is to reach the world somebody please say amen right there before I knock myself out on this pulpit (laughs) that's the sole purpose that we're here to reach the world to make disciples in all nations, and the simple fact is this morning, folks, and I don't want to sound cold and heartless and mean and all the other, but, but now listen, the cold hard facts are, if you are saved this morning, and you are not using your life to make disciples in all nations, as far as God is concerned, you would be better off dead. You're literally, as far as God is concerned, of no earthly value to Him whatsoever. You'd be better off in heaven because there you'll know Him more, you'll love Him more, you'll worship Him better. There's one reason and the only way that we can actually justify our existence on this planet is fulfilling that sole purpose God had in leaving us here. And folks, now listen. We're sitting in this room this morning with God's infallible Word in our hands and what we have seen around this place week after week after week after week is what time and what season it actually is. And week after week over the past several years we've we've just learned more and more and more about how late the hour is and how short our time is before the Lord Jesus Christ comes in the clouds and raptures us off of this this planet 
week after week, we keep learning about our mission. We keep learning about what, what time it is. And you know, it, it, it seems like every once in a while, self-included, self at the forefront, it seems like every once in a while that, that we allow God to give us glimpses of what all of that really means and how we ought to be living our life. But, but you know what? It's been hard, hasn't it? it it's hard to, to keep your focus on what it is that we're really supposed to be doing. And I know this really sounds weird. I know that this is almost going to sound blasphemous when I say this. But since we've had such a hard time learning this lesson from God, what do you say maybe this morning we learn the lesson from Satan? And again, I understand exactly how that sounds. But maybe we ought to learn the lesson from Satan. Maybe seeing the way that he's going to approach his mission when he hits this planet and he knows his time is short maybe maybe it could be something that God could use to kick us in the seat of the pants and finally get us kicked into gear about our thinking and our approach to the mission folks it's time that we sift out the, the clutter in our thinking and like Satan get one single-minded focus on what we're here to do. And you know what? It's time that we start eating it and drinking it and sleeping it. It's, it's time that we cried out with the psalmist what, what he prayed in Psalm 90 in verse 12. So teach us to number our days that we may apply our hearts unto wisdom. You, you see, folks, when you know what your purpose is, and you know how little time you have to get it done. You know what it does? It gives you the wisdom to not let anything get in the way of your goal. And you know what is so sad? I'm telling you. And please let God speak to your heart right now. What is so sad is God's adversary is going to come to this planet in the middle of the tribulation period, and he is going to apply the Psalm 90:12 principle. He's going to come, and he's going to number his days, and very calculatedly, very focusedly, he is going to come at his mission, and he's going to do what he was sent here to do. And we're sitting here as God's children, and right now, I don't need to convince you that we're living in the very last of the last days before the rapture takes us off of the face of this planet. And we're messing around. We've, we haven't numbered our days. We, we, we preach like, oh, this could happen at any moment. And then week after week, we live our life like we've got forever. First Chronicles chapter 12, verse 32 says that the children of Issachar, listen, were men that had understanding of the times to know what Israel ought to do. And folks, if we know what time it is, the principle is, it ought to scream out to us what we ought to be doing and get us to realize that if we're going to get anything done as far as reaching this world with the gospel is concerned, that we've got to get on with it. Because Jesus told us in John chapter 9 and verse 4, the night cometh when no man can work. And folks, listen, listen, 
every single day. And, and, and listen to me. I'm talking every single day. Right here in this field where God has placed us, we got to be busy carrying out the one and only mission God has given to us. And I mean, if we're going to learn anything from Satan, if we're going to listen to God on this thing and see the example of Satan, we've got to get to the point to where every single day, that's our focus. Folks, there's no time for us to be flopping around. There's, listen, there's no day offs when it comes to the mission. It, it, we've been quoting it for years. It's time that we stop quoting 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 58 and we started living it and becoming people who are steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. And folks, listen. If there's ever, 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 ever been an urgency behind the need for people to live their life in that kind of way, according to 1 Corinthians 15, 58, it's in these last days that we're living in. If it's ever got to connect with a group of people that they're to always, always be steadfast, unmovable, and abounding in this work, it's got to be us. And you know what is so sad, folks? is that it's easier to get Christians in these last days involved in, in political causes and moral causes and social ca causes than it is to get them involved in the one thing that Jesus left us on this planet to do. And while the world is dying and going to hell and at any moment is going to enter into the most incredible and horrendous time of pain and suffering and tribulation in the entire history of the world and Christian Christians are busying themselves endorsing political candidates and fighting political candidates and fighting for civil rights and for Christian rights and for animal rights and for uh, against Disney World and picketing abortion clinics and we're busy, busy, busy doing all of this stuff when God's time clock toward the rapture just keeps clicking along and day after day Christians are just flopping around busying themselves and all of this stuff when there's soon coming a day when we'll no longer be able to work and I'm telling you guys it's time. You know, I think we've all enjoyed ourselves coming through the book of Revelation and learning all of this, this stuff that's getting ready to happen on, on the earth. But I'm telling you, I, I, with, with, just personally, I'm telling you, I'm sick of me. I, I'm sick of learning all of this stuff and it having no impact on a daily basis on my focus. And it's time... It's time that we shook ourselves. And I'm asking you to let the Spirit of God shake you today. And it's time we, we, we focused on our real reason for still being on this planet and how few days we actually have left to be here. And start letting that determine what we will and what we will not involve ourselves in until reaching the world with the Gospel becomes our all-consuming all-embracing, preoccupying desire 
and goal and we spend every single moment of every single day steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in that work. It's time. And you know what? Let me just say this as we're, we're cruising through this. You know, we've locked in in the last several years or so as we've studied the Word of God together and found out some things. We've locked in on the fact that this Bible that I'm holding in my hand is God's final authority for English-speaking people. And folks, that's wonderful. And that's important for us as a church in the last days. I, I've, I firmly believe that. And I'm thrilled that we've come to that point. But the truth is, folks, we don't have time to try to convert Christians to our version of the Bible. Not in light of the fact that fully half of the entire world's population at this very moment has never one time ever even had one person ever clearly give them a clear presentation of the gospel. Not in light of the fact that fully 20% of the world's population today in 1998 in what we call the information age 20% of this world's population has never one time ever heard the two words, Jesus Christ. And folks, listen, something's got to happen to us. We've got to get our attention and our resources and our energies focused on the one thing that we are on this planet to do. And I'm telling you, folks, it's time that we stopped pacing ourselves. It's time that we, we just kick into a gear to where we finally believe all this stuff that we've spent a year and a half learning about what time it is and all this, all this stuff. And it's time. It's time that something happens. You ever watch a, a, a two-miler run their race? For those of you that don't know much about track, the, the 440 track up here at Tuscora Park, a, a two-mile race is eight times around that track. And what you find that a two-miler is going to do when he comes out in that race, he's going to come out of that block, and the first thing he's going to do is try to get his place on that track. As soon as he gets his place on that track, he's going to kick in to a pace that's going to carry him seven times around that track. It's pretty intense. But something happens when he comes to that final lap. When he hits that final lap, that last time, man, he starts that thing, and he's going about a half sprint by the time that he begins that last lap. By the time he gets halfway around that track, he's into about a three-quarter sprint. And, buddy, when he turns that final corner, he's in an all-out sprint to that finish line. And you know what his goal is? To cross that line without anything left to give. And folks, some of us are still approaching the Great Commission, still approaching our mission, like we've got four more laps to go. And we're pacing ourselves. And I'm telling you folks, we're not only on the last lap, we're not only halfway around the track, we've turned the corner. And it's time that this church finally gets to business and follow the example of Satan and number our days, get one focus, and go for it every 
single day, every single moment of every single day, getting in our minds the sole reason I'm on this planet. Yes, I'm here to love God, to know God, and to worship God, but I'm here to reach this world with the gospel, and I don't have long before I'm going to be raptured off of this planet, and I will not have the time to work. It's time. Amen? When you guys came in today, did you have another sheet talking about the doors of opportunity? Would you mind if I borrow that from you? You have one there? Now, folks, what, what, we've, what we've heard here this morning, we, we've watched the way Satan's going to approach his mission. And I'm telling you, I wanted like crazy to get out of chapter 12, but I could not see him approach his mission and see the way that he very calculatedly goes after this thing and us not just spend just a little bit of time talking about we've got to get on with it. We've got, to, we've got to do what we can do while we still have the time. And what that means, because I, I know some of you right now, because you know, we spent all last Sunday talking about the doors of opportunity that God's opened to us to reach the world, to make disciples in all nations. I, I realize that if you're not careful, some of you are going to click off right now and say, yeah, 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 heard about that. And I'm saying to you, God's planted us in this field right here. Our job every single day of our life is to be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. I've got to go to work, I know, but, but you're there and that's your mission field. Those are the people that God has placed in your life to reach with the gospel. And man, what is so cool about that is we're living in such dark days and people are living such ungodly lives. You ought to stick out like a sore thumb at, at your place of employment. Hey, it's so dark out there. Just a little flicker of light is going to grab the attention of the world. And listen, if you're loving God and knowing God and worshiping God with your life, I promise you, you'll, step, you'll stand out while you're there. And every single day, we've got to approach our life 24-7, 365. We've got to have that intensity toward our mission and why we're on this planet. But at the same time, God's commission to us is not just in our Jerusalem. It is to take His Word and make disciples in all nations. And it's time that we set ourselves and we set this church to accomplishing that. Amen? And I'm glad you agree with me. And men, let me just talk to you for a minute here. That first door of opportunity there to Russia, looking for men that will distribute one million Bibles along the Volga River in Russia. Do you have any idea, men, how many a million is? It is going to take an incredible amount of manpower. And I want to challenge every man that is 18 years of age and older in this church. I want to challenge you to set yourself. While you're carrying out the mission every single day in your, of, of your life right here, I want to ask you to set yourself to join us, to join your pastors, and being part of that crowd that's going to be handing out those million Bibles, I, I, I almost hope that we, we get to the place to where we're going to see what happens to Russia 
in the midst of the tribulation period before we actually go on this trip. But if I spent the time this morning, it would put a real urgency behind it because, guys, that nation plays a major, 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 major part of what's going to be taking place in the tribulation period, and it ain't for God. You know what God's given us the opportunity? In this wee little bit of time that we got before the rapture takes place, you know what? We got the opportunity to go give the gospel to some men and to some families that could well have the possibility of being raptured along with us before their nation turns their intensity against God and against the nation of Israel. We've got an incredible opportunity. But you know what? I'll just tell you. a, A lot of us, our lives are in disarray. And the reason we cannot carry out the mission with that kind of intensity is just any number of reasons. And and so I'll tell you what we're going to do. As a church, we're going to number our days. We're going to get some intensity around here. And what we're going to do, starting the first week of November, until we go to Russia, I'm going to ask every man that's in this church, whether it actually works out for you to get on the plane to go to Russia or not, I'm going to ask every man in this church to come to an early morning meeting once a week where we're going we're gonna to just intensify this thing of the, our mission. And we're going we're gonna to physically prepare ourselves to carry out the mission. We're going to spiritually prepare ourselves, mentally prepare ourselves, financially prepare ourselves, I- any way that you can think of, mentally, psychologically, wh- whatever it is, man. For the next eight solid months, what we're going to do is we're going to try to get every man in this church at a place in your life to where you can see very clearly your mission. And we're going to go after this thing week after week after week. And, and, and all of this moving toward us getting to Russia and handing out those Bibles in that, that little bit of time that we got left before the rapture takes place. And if you already know, there's no way in the world that I could take that two weeks of my life to do that. It's an impossibility. I'd like to ask you to come out anyway, because while we're over there, at that period of time, what we're going to ask is every man in this church that doesn't go on that trip to come out just like you did, but then not just once a week, but every single day, early morning, praying for that group of men that's on the other side of the earth. And, and, and folks, now this is just one opportunity. Now, now some of you may go to China. Uh, the, the doors that are open there. Some of you may go to Australia, and, and that's fine too. But what we're going to do is we're going to intensify the efforts around here. And if that if that freak does that freak anybody out? It, it, it's time, don't you think? I mean, if Satan's going to come to this planet and and he's going to approach his mission like that, don't you think that maybe those of us that are living in the very last of the last days before we won't have time to work? Maybe we could just begin to, to get serious about this thing. And hey, let's, let's go out doing what we've been left here to do. Amen? And if you're here this morning and you've never received Jesus Christ, now, now don't pack up, y'all. Now, let me talk to you folks that are here this morning that have never received Christ. I believe with all my heart that God brought you to this service so that you could understand we're living in the last days. And God has a most definite plan for your life. But that plan begins 
with you coming to him and entering into a personal relationship with God through his son the Lord Jesus Christ and you see that's why Jesus came to this planet Jesus was God in a human body who came to this planet because we're all sinners he took our sin upon him paid our price so that we could have the relationship with God that we were intended to have from the very beginning and if you're here this morning and that's never happened in your life listen that's the way that you begin your walk with the God of this universe by receiving his son you say well what does that mean it's simply saying I know I'm a sinner and I know that there's nothing that I can do to remove my sin I believe that you did what was necessary and I trust that and that alone as payment in full for my sin come into my life and call the shots that's it and if you're here and you've never been saved because the hour is so late y'all I'm begging you if God's speaking to your heart deal with this thing today nail that thing down nail your relationship with God down for the rest of us that are here the hour is late we're here for one reason and it's time that we stopped quoting all the right verses saying all the nice things and hitting at it and it's time that that becomes the focal point of our existence on this planet Lord would you please help us to heed the things that we've learned from your word this morning I pray that you change our lives today I pray that this would would be a turning point I pray there would be a day when our focus got off of ourself got off of our life got off of our kingdom and our wants and our desires and our goals and our aspirations and our future and we begin to see that we have a short period of time to carry out the one reason we're on this planet so help us Lord to be steadfast unmovable always abounding in that work until you come and Lord for those that are here this morning that have never received you as their Savior I pray today that this would be their day they would call upon your name to save them in Jesus name Amen